welcome to this week's episode of I'm Scotty Podcast. This week's guest is Bruce Walker, CEO at FutureX. Good morning, Bruce Walker, and welcome to the I Was Going to Podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for having me, Stuart, Colin. Great to be here. Bruce, I say it every week, and I really don't want to say it, but the very first question that we have to ask you is, how have you found this unusual time during the pandemic, and what have you been doing to keep yourself busy? Well, I think, like everyone, um, it's been it's been tough. You know, it's been really hard. I think the um, it comes in waves. That's what I've you know, when I look at it with with a bit of perspective now, the um, at times you're like, what on earth is going on here? And at other times you get into a bit of flow and things are actually, you know, working okay. And, you know, there's a bit of time right at the beginning, you're thinking, oh, this is this is not bad. A wee break from from having to, you know, do life as normal. Um, but overall, I think the thing is, is that it's a bizarre situation where we're all simultaneously experiencing the same thing while also all having completely individual experiences of it. And I think that's a bit of a, um, that's a bit of a crazy thing, really. Um, I'm not really sure if everyone in the world has ever experienced the same thing at the same time like this, and it's it's a fascinating thing. You know, as a kind of, as an entrepreneur and an entrepreneurial person, I've been around long enough to know that when there's disruption, there's an opportunity as well, and, and we, we really didn't hold back as a business and we decided really quickly, we were just going to transform to, to meet the moment. Um, you know, I feel like as a business, our job is to, to serve the, the entrepreneurs and the startup businesses that, that we really exist to, to serve. And we had to think, well, well, how are we going to help them? It's no, no use if we sit on our hands and wait for something to happen. We're going to have to be the ones to actually do it, to lead that change. So we transformed really, really quickly, uh, moved everything online, Changed the way that we engaged with people, um, so that's actually been uh, that's been amazing for us. I would say it's given us that opportunity to behave in ways we wouldn't usually, um, while also recognizing that you know there's elements that we can't wait to get back to. We can't wait to have in more in person stuff. We can't wait to be more relationship focused again. Um, but I think that you can't stop the world from turning, and so you've got to be ready for for the unexpected. And I, and I think that actually as a team we've been really mindful of that really conscious of the human toll of this um, and the fact that you can't predict it either you know one minute you'll be feeling good the next minute you might not be feeling so good and you just need to to meet people where they're at on this journey I think. Just before the pandemic struck in the UK spend uh, some time out in China and we were looking to set up a business uh, and I remember to this day just when you say about you can't predict anything I remember that the the Chinese colleague had said about the pandemic and that they were going into a lockdown. Mm. And I listened to this and I thought, you know what? You would never get people to go into a lockdown in the UK. <laughs> How wrong can you be? <laughs> but, but you know, that I would, I would have said that was a pretty safe assumption before we did it too. And I tell you, it's a lesson for anyone thinking when you say, oh, no, we can't do or it can't be done. I tell you, with the will, anything can be done. I'm curious, Stuart, about your opinion. Uh, sorry, Bruce, about a couple of things on this. Because um, I think now we're reaching a phase where, you know, everyone was uh, hoping to eliminate this disease, right? And the practical biological science is, no, you won't, right? Yeah. And uh, what we're having to do now is move to a phase of living with the disease. And you get, um, really, in my view, very 
biased uh, sides of it in the media about how you should feel about that. People who are scared, people who do give a crap about it and just take advantage of the situation. But I really do think we're moving to that because I've got relatives in Australia and they're locked down now. And yet it used to be that you were getting this model held up to you. Oh, you can't actually uh, you know, do as well as Australia because they've got it under control. And now they're out of control. So this, this damn thing will find its way in no matter what you do to lock it out. So I think now, and in a business environment as well, people have to figure out how to live with this now. So I don't mean be reckless with it, but that changes attitudes to how businesses get back or businesses should start or how people get back into work, I think. So mm. what's your view on that? I think my, my initial thought on that is that where we're at today in the UK, we didn't have to be here. So the, it's a series of, of decision makings that have led us to be in the position that we're in. I think that um, if you, I think uh, the media exists for its own purpose, right? So if you if you allow them to motivate how you feel, then they're doing their job just right. And I think everyone's got to these days be really skeptical of um, how they're making us feel, um, because a lot of the time they use deliberate language in order to make us feel a particular way when the information might be something quite difficult. So I think that in this world where it's hard to distinguish between fact and fiction a lot of the time, you need to use your own sensibilities as much as you possibly can. I think that when you look at the way other countries have behaved, it tells us that it wasn't an inevitability that we would end up in the position we're currently in now. I think what you're seeing is that they're realising that making it up as you go along, and I mean the powers that be, making it up as you go along isn't an effective strategy for eliminating or even managing a virus. Um, so that's where I think we're at. I think that, of course, we need to find a way to, to live with it because, you know, we find ways to live with, with all diseases. You know, I think get vaccinated, follow the procedures, be reasonable, wear your mask in crowded places, keep a reasonable distance from people. A lot of this, to me, isn't rocket science. It's just reasonability. I think when you lose sense, when you get just sick of it, which is where we're all at, let's be honest, then it's easy to start to convince yourself that oh, it's safe in this condition or it's safe in that condition. But when you start telling yourself wee fibs just to get yourself by, you know you're on to a rocky place in my, in my view. Um, I think we just need to be patient, get the whole population vaccinated, um, and, and we've got to learn to, to live with it. I think that what you can't do is constantly be plunging businesses into complete and utter uncertainty because it's not fair on the people that they employ. It's not fair on their suppliers. It's not fair on the business owners. It's not fair on the customers. Um, and I think that what you're seeing is with that attitude is taking all these businesses for granted. And I think that that's, that's a complete dereliction of duty from, from those, those in power. The job of the government should be providing stability to the economic environment as much as they can. And the, my impression is of making it up as you go along doesn't provide that type of stability. And we've not even spoke about Brexit on top of all that. 
I'm sure yeah. we'll get. I'm sure we'll get there, Bruce. I'm going to take you back so that we don't get too uh, heavily involved with uh, the pandemic side of things. You were born and educated in Scotland, Bruce. Can you tell us a wee bit more about this time? And did you uh, enjoy your time? So, so I'm a lad from from Stirling, um, and went to Wallace High School in, in Stirling. Um, went to Bridgemallen Primary, and um, I did really enjoy school. To be honest with you. Um, I mean, it was like an evolution, like most things, you know, um, the going from um, a primary school that was um, oh, pretty middle class, I'd say, to a high school that was exceptionally diverse. I mean, probably, you know, as, as, as diverse as you get in, in Scotland, you've got catchment areas from all sorts of, you know, different socioeconomic backgrounds, whatever. Um, but I absolutely loved that. I feel like that's the makeup of, of lots of Scottish people anyway. You know, that's that's the makeup of my my family. Um, and I think that there's something about that um, environment that is, um, it's, it can often be sink or swim. And I think that that's the real challenge for us is that um, that lots of people can struggle under the pressures of, the, of a Scottish system. Um, I happen to, to quite enjoy it in lots of ways. You know, I was a very fiery young person had a lot of opinions lots of thoughts i wasn't afraid to share them um and school eventually for me was a place where i was able to um learn and explore and change and um i always felt like i was actually accepted to kind of do whatever i, I wanted to do so you know um that gave me the space to eventually get involved in young enterprise scotland at school and um that is what led me to ultimately creating Weird Future and then, you know, going on to spend the, the next 10 years being involved in entrepreneurship. So school definitely enabled that for me. Um, I often describe Scottish high schools a bit like prison rules. Is that there's a whole set of rules you need to learn. Um, and if you don't learn them pretty quickly, you'll be on the receiving end of, of some hardship. But once you, once you master the rules, you realise it's a bit of a game you're playing. Um, and that's certainly how I look about, back on it with a bit of perspective. How I felt at the time, I don't know. That's interesting, the, the analogy you used there, that it's a bit of a game, the education. We had uh, John Hailstone on as a guest, and he explained ex expressed business in a similar manner, that uh, business is simply a game. You have to understand the, the, the rules, and once you do, you can start playing it properly. And that, that was his analogy as well, Bruce. You also start to break the rules. Once you yeah. know them, and I, and I honestly think that this is a, a, a mistake um, that lots of young people in particular have, is they feel like, you know, they, they want to disrupt and rebel against the system without ever learning the rules of the system and how to play it. Because once you learn the rules, then you can start to disrupt, then you can start to bend, break. But you're going to find that if you just are just going hard up against it, you're, you'll often find yourself hitting a brick wall. Um, so I would always say master the rules and then learn to break them. Did you actually get any career advice specifically to become the entrepreneur that you are now, Bruce? So I would say that that my experience of school ultimately led me to where I am. Whether or not the school system helped it, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure or not. Whether or not you know it was a few teachers that you know give you that leg up or pull you aside or tell you you can do something rather than the whole system itself. 
No, when I was at school, the idea of being an entrepreneur was not something that was put forward. Um, the idea of being, even when we did, to be honest with you, even when we did Young Enterprise, it was this idea of developing like enterprise skills. But no one was re really, almost like they were scared to tell you, you know, you could be an entrepreneur, you know. You know, when I went to the career advisor, actually, and she said, you know, what are the things you're interested in? I said, well, you know, I'm interested in PE. I'm interested in um, religious studies. I found that interesting. And she said to me that, oh, well, you know, you could be a minister. <laughs> and I mean, that's not a joke. That's, that's the truth. <laughs> that's what she said to me. And I thought, well, no, that's not for me. Um, you know, I'm not a religious person. <laughs> and for, for a starters. But my, so it wasn't really until I decided when I did the Young Enterprise that, no, this is for me. And I quite like the idea of doing business. Um, but I took business as a crash hire and got a C in it. And so, you know, you, you don't always get things first time. Um, and so I went back and did it and, and got a better qualification. But, you know, it wasn't something until towards the end of my high school experience that I thought, actually, maybe business and entrepreneurship, maybe that's the thing for me. That's interesting. I thought you were almost going to go along the same route as Ian Donaldson, one of our other guests, uh, the, the the lead singer of H2O, ex explained that he went along to the career advisor in Govan High School. And the chap said, uh, can you take a seat, uh, Mr Donaldson? And he sat down and he says, what would you like to be for your future career? And Ian turned to him and said, I'd like to be a pop star. And the career advisor looked him up and down and said, uh, next <laughs> <laughs> i tell that so often but uh, it, it does exist. Uh, moving on just a wee bit uh, bruce uh, you founded we are the future can you tell us a wee bit more about how that came about when you'd left school definitely so um when we were in school we as part of young enterprise scotland we created this event um, where we had no idea about starting up business what what's needed what do you do and so we decided what if we ran an event and we just invited along local business people to tell us about about that um and it that led me on to just this you know crazy journey of reaching out to the most successful business people that i could think of in, in the country so i started off by sending uh, alan sugar lord sugar an, an email and then i sent michelle moan an email i sent tom hunter an email i sent you know you name it i i emailed them um and the idea was come and speak at my event. And for most of them, you know, some of them you didn't get back to, some of them they did get back to you. But actually, eventually after hounding Lord Sugar's office, I got I managed to get a quote and an endorsement from, from them for the event I was organizing. Um, and various other people came along and spoke at that. Um, Brian Williamson was, was one of them. Um, and afterwards, when I was going off, I was going to university afterwards. That was the that was the, the plan. And I moved to Edinburgh to go to Edinburgh Napier University to study international business. Um, always there's with this kind of, you know, this cautious idea that, you know, you should always have a backup plan, always make sure you've, you know, you've got something else to do. So, but I thought we need to ignite this startup scene in Scotland. And so created We Are the Future, came to Edinburgh. I met this group of students who were organizing an event called the Startup Summit. And I basically convinced them to let me run it and let me lead it because I had a company already and that they should do it under my my banner. Um, and we ended up running the Startup Summit in Edinburgh and 500 people attended the first event. 
we managed to somehow convince RBS to, to sponsor it. Um, and it was actually just this roaring success. And I think it was because we did things differently. Um, you know, at that time, the, the kind of standard was, you know, someone gets up who's a millionaire or a billionaire and, and they tell you for an hour about, you know, how they did it. And I thought, we need diversity here. We need to get people who are at different stages of the journey. We need to get someone up there who's only been doing this for a couple of months and say, this is all the, the challenges I've been through in the last couple of months. This is what you can avoid and be much more practical. And that's really what the Startup Summit was all about. And then the, the crazy thing was that we'd invited this young woman over from um, California. So a friend of mine introduced me to her and she had this amazing story where when she was 18, she sent a tweet to Richard Branson saying, I've got this business idea. I'd love to meet you. And they got a response saying, you know, Richard Branson will be at this charity event. Um, it costs $2,000. If you go, maybe you'll get the chance to meet her. So you can imagine that that's not the most appetizing proposition. Um, $2,000 to charity, maybe you'll meet him. Anyway, long story short, Stacey convinces her dad to invest $2,000 in her business so she can go to, to this event. She goes to the event, she meets Richard Branson, and he invests a million dollars in her company. And then two years later, she sold the business when she was 20, and she flew over to Scotland to, to speak at our event. Um, and she did that really friendly thing afterwards where she said, oh, you should come over to Silicon Valley and, you know, you can stay with me and I'll show you around and et cetera. And so she was probably a bit shocked when a couple of months later, I phoned her up and I said, I booked the flight and I'm on my way. Um, but that led me to, I thought, I'll follow the same approach. I'll email everyone in Silicon Valley and see if they'll meet with me. Um, and so I ended up emailing Tim Cook at Apple um, I didn't know if it was his real email address. It didn't feel like it would be, but I thought I'll just go for it. And anyway, I got a response. Tell me, Bruce, it wasn't tim.cook at habble.com, was it? it? It's pretty much exactly that. Yeah, it's pretty much exactly that. Um, it was either that or just tim at apple.com. Um, um, but they eventually said to me, you know, um, you know, what, what, what is it you want, young man? Um, and I said, look, I'm going to be over in Silicon Valley I'd love to meet with you. This is what I'd like to do. And they passed me down the chain and eventually got a meeting with someone in Johnny Ives' office, uh, who's the lead designer. Um, and that started off this journey into Silicon Valley. And that's really what we're the future then over a course of five years. We ended up running events in LA, San Francisco, Chicago, New York. We ended up going out to Berlin, London, um, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Abu Dhabi, um, all on this idea that, I wanted to inspire and connect more entrepreneurs and then plug that experience back into Scotland so that we could really ignite a, a global startup movement from, from Scotland. And that's really where what We Are The Future was all about. Brilliant story, Bruce. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And uh, it must have been an amazing time. Just So just moving on, uh, during that time, you're also a director of Power of Youth and a contributor to the Huffington Post. Can you tell us a wee bit more about this time? Yes, sure. So, um, so Power of Youth um, was actually founded by um, a, guy, a guy called Adam and, and some other folks. And that was really around the kind of purpose-driven approach to, to business. But they, particularly from my experience, because I've attended a number of their um, retreats, um, and it was really about entrepreneurs who 
it was about personal development, about expanding your kind of horizon and how you looked at stuff. And they were always the most amazing experiences where you built, you know, over a course of a weekend, you built really meaningful, deep relationships and friendships with, with people. Um, and we realized that over, over that time that if we could combine the ability to run big conferences, which is what we were doing at We Are The Future, and power of youth's ability to build really deep, meaningful connections that's kind of create that's um, related to kind of higher purpose. Then that's really what's needed for, for business. Um, and that kind of coincided at the same time as I was work, working with Richard Branson and the Virgin Group in Chicago around people, planet, and business for good. And everything was starting to coalesce around this idea that, you know, business should be a force for good. Of course it should be. You know, actually that's the original purpose behind you know business and entrepreneurship is it should serve the employees the people it should be good for communities um, it should be regenerative rather than this actually quite modern day uh, view of business which is totally which can be extractive this idea that we just suck out all the resources and it goes to a few people I mean that's not actually the way healthy business real healthy businesses sustain themselves um, so that's part of the, the relationship with Power of Youth. We ended up merging We Are the Future with Power of Youth, and that's what that eventually led to creating uh, FutureX. And those journeys are never smooth, and so that that's been a that's been a journey and a challenge, um, which you know you learn a lot from. Um, and then on the Huffington Post side of things, um, I tell you, they're going to you're going to start to pick up a pattern here. <laughs> um, I emailed Ariana Huffington, who's the founder of Huffington Post. Um, and I said to her, I would love her to speak at one of my events. I'd love to, to get involved. And I told her a bit of what, what she was doing. And she wrote back to me and she said, um, you know, let's coordinate whether or not I can make it to Edinburgh. If not, I'd definitely like to send a reporter to the event. And I also I'd like to get you involved as being a writer for Huffington Post. And so it was Anna Huffington um, that actually gave me the gig um, for writing for Huff Post. Amazing story, Bruce. Uh, it's, it's trial and error, right? So. You know, you need to get really comfortable with rejection and you need to get really comfortable with being ignored completely. <laughs> you know, you need to be so, um, I guess, focused on what your mission is. And so you send out these things into the ether and you let go of whether or not they'll come back. That doesn't mean you don't follow up or you don't chase it, but you let go of the expectation that it will come back. Um, and the other thing I really learned, and this was a big lesson for me, is so I emailed so we'd started doing these trips to the US and I, I thought, what better than an airline partner to, to help us? Um, there's definitely a bit of naivety at the time thinking, oh, you know, who, they'll, part, they'll want to partner with us. And so I emailed the CEO at Virgin Atlantic and I said, look, this is what I'm doing. It's great. It's so exciting. I think you should become an airline partner. Um, I'm laughing now because of how ridiculous that is. Um, and um, he got back to, or someone else got back to me from Virgin Atlantic and they were like, no not that interested you know we're involved with this charity and that charity this is the process for getting to come involved with us so I was disappointed and I reflected on it for a few weeks and I thought I'm just going to send them another email and this time I'm going to change the tone of it and all I said in this email was this is my mission to inspire and connect entrepreneurs around the world have you got 10 minutes to give me some advice on what I'm doing well at the time, it was a guy called Craig Krieger, who was the CEO of Virgin Atlantic. He got back to me personally, and he said, I really love what you're doing. It's totally aligned to what we do at Virgin Atlantic, and I'd like to fly you down to London um, to meet with me. And long story short, they became our airline partners 
Um, and it was asking for their help rather than going in with, you know, I'm a big deal, you should want to work with me. It was going back to being humble and just being more authentic, I think. Um, so yeah, you've, you've got to learn that, that experience is that it won't always work, but if you're authentic and, and humble about it, it, it works more often than not. And you also got to ask in the first place, Bruce. I think that's the other thing. Um, can I just ask um, on your TED Talks, because it looks like I, I read the, the write-up you did on your experience of that. There's something that, I mean, I think those of us who've done public speaking, there's a point in time you realise that you can actually hold an audience and that you can communicate better than you thought you could. Mm. Uh, not everybody realises that or gets practised at that. But of course, at the beginning, I think young people especially, they might get excited or nervous and speak like a machine gun or, uh, you know, mess things up a little bit. But you've got to do that to, to get the knack of it, I suppose. And you don't necessarily understand the spontaneity of having a conversation with an audience. But what was your um, experience? Did you grow into that? Did you find right away that you had the knack of that? What was your TED Talk experience doing to that as well? I think it's something that probably developed over a bit of a, a lifetime. You know, when I was um, when I was young, I was very interested in um, drama and acting and all that stuff. You know, when I was in primary school, I loved all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's probably an origin there of, you know, being a bit theatrical at, at, at that stage. And then, um, you know, I alluded to being a bit of a firecracker when I got to high school. Um, and one of the ways in which um, I stopped being so argumentative with everyone was uh, they got me into debating. And uh, debating wasn't very cool at that time, by the way, in our school. <laughs> so to kind of put your head above the parapet. But me and my best pal, Caleb, we were able to to do it and it, 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 and it somehow be okay. And so we learned how to become really articulate and to put our point across um, without getting angry, without getting upset, without getting too emotional. And, you know, in the debating style, as people get up there and they try to fucking tear apart what you've just said, and you need to make sure that you can respond to that and still look like you, you're right, even though you know what they're saying is, you know, true. <laughs> Um, so I think that all had good experience uh, in it. And then also just realizing that when I tell my story, it's just, it's true. It's my story. It's not, it's, you know, and kind of letting go of that. But again, you get nervous before you do that kind of stuff. Um, I'd say for the TED Talk, to be honest with you, I think I didn't really fully appreciate what I was doing at the time. You know, I didn't really think I fully understood that this was a talk that's going to be around forever now. Um, you know, it's got tens of thousands of views now. Um, and it's probably just an authentic insight into who I was at the time. But I was only 20 when I did that, 19 or 20 when I did that talk. Um, and so it's funny for that to be immortalized now um, as, your, as your TED Talk. But, you know, I think ultimately life's just about growing and evolving. And, you know, you'll get things right and you'll get things very wrong. Um, and public speaking is one of those things that I think the more you do it, the more you realize that actually everyone in the audience wants you to do well they're willing you on they want you to do well they don't want you to it's awkward when someone doesn't isn't doing so well on stage you know you don't like that and so the more you realize that that's true that everyone wants you to be doing well you can start to relax and realize that it's okay to make a fumble it's okay to make a mistake um but you know overall 
And I think that's a good thing about Scotland is in my experience is that there's some people who, do, who might not get it and don't want to back you, but there's a big, great community of people who really, really, really want you to do well and are proud every time you do something. And you've just got to make sure you find that tribe. On that, Bruce, did you find that your family and friends were encouraging what you wanted to do as a, an early entrepreneur? I think that um, they were encouraging in the sense that um, I don't really know if my pals at school believed it or not, to be honest with you. Um, so it's hard to tell, you know, whether or not they, you know, they thought it was actually viable or not, or they thought I was a bit mad. But, you know, I was also the kind of character where, you know, you wouldn't really be giving me a hard time over that. So, <laughs> so you know, I was at that time, I think my pals were kind of like, we'll just see what he does. You know, we'll just, we'll just see. Family has been an interesting one because, again, I think it's a similar thing is, is that people are afraid you're going to fail. They're, they're afraid you're going to get hurt in the process or, or all these kind of things. And so I think they're a bit cautious, I'd say is the word. Um, but no, my mum and dad in particular have always been big, you know, my biggest supporters. Anytime I do anything, they want to read about it or talk about it or share it with people. And, you know, they're constantly, um, you know, got my back. It's been funny over the years, you know, I remember at different times, my dad, you know, trying to get me into what he called product businesses, because that's how he saw business, you know, you need to have a product, um, and, you know, you need to be able to sell a physical thing. So there's a bit of that kind of like, you know, there's more to it than that that you're, you're dealing with sometimes. But overall, I think you can't wait around for someone else to give you approval. You have to just go for it. And, you know, I have lost friendships not because of anything active but because for whatever reason people you know don't want to hear about what you're doing or they don't want to hear that you're having a good time and I know that's certainly true for other entrepreneurs I've spoken to whose whose pals have said to them you know stop posting on social media or stop telling people all the exciting things you're doing and you know the reason that people approach it in that way is for their own challenges you've just got to duck your head out of that and find people who, who want you to do well and are proud of you when you do well. Um, and there are those folks are out there. So, you know, you can establish new friendships. Can I ask you, just probing that a wee bit, and I'm sure Colin would uh, ask the same question. Do you think what you've just described is specific to Scotland? Um, if you, you've travelled over to the States, did you find the same level of potential cynicism for what you're wanting to do as opposed to Scotland? Do you think we're in a society that we, you can do well, as Colin puts it, you're, you're okay to succeed once, but twice you're beginning to get big-headed and third time, no, come back here, you're blowing your own trumpet too much. So this is, this is honestly my experience. See, when I leave the country, I am way more successful in everyone else's eyes. You know, in terms of like, so when I'm in America, they see me as really successful and they speak to you like that that's, that that's the way. Here, it's almost like, you know, it's that kind of, you know, a Ken your favor type attitude. Um, and there's that, you know, I know where you've come from and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, you're not really doing it. You've not got a fast car yet, are you? So you're just pretending to be successful. And it's like, well, what do you mean by success? You know, so I've, you know, I've paid my own wage since I was 17. Uh, own my own flat, uh, I employ lots of people, I, I work my own hours, I control my life, and I'm building something I think is really meaningful. I mean, for me, that's 
that's my definition of success. I feel pretty successful at that. There's more I want to do. There's far, far more I want to achieve. But, you know, a lot of people will go their whole life having never got that. Um, and, you know, it even feels strange to say that out loud. How dare I say I'm successful <laughs> myself? You know, how dare I? But, you know, you've got to just develop that you can't rely on someone else telling you you're doing a good job. You might wait your whole life for that. You need to just start telling yourself you're doing a good job. Bruce, can I can I give you a quote maybe? Sure. Don't say, don't say I was going to <laughs> just get out there and do it. <laughs> and that's the whole purpose of these talks. Exactly. It's so important. Uh, we find time and time again, and I'm sure Colin will want to get in on this, but uh, time and time again, we've got a society of latent potential in Scotland. We're great at doing an awful lot of things. Looking back historically on, on uh, the, the entrepreneurs that have gone before, you've talked about uh, uh, successful businesses. One of the most successful nearest to me would be the Coates uh, based in Paisley. And if you look at what they gave back to Paisley in the, 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 the bequested the town hall, the bequested uh, park, and they wanted to make sure that their workers were well looked after. The other dimension that I think, because I can see you uh, exuding it, you're happy with what you do. And so in terms of that, you, you make a very poignant um, point about the uh, why, how do you measure success and usually uh, the old school jump to the materialistic side of, well I've got this, I've got that I've got these assets whatever. but actually um, given that obviously we're at the other end of the age scale in our career <laughs> I suppose we can reflect a little bit but I have to say when you're happy doing things you start to be the better version of yourself, and uh, and you and then and you get encouragement because if that rubs off in others, you feel the chemistry. And there's something uh, for inexperienced youths uh, who might be struggling to start in their career or get a, a job or whatever. And some of the people we care about in the charity, that's a, an ingredient that it's not easy to install, but they just have to get the experience of it. And sometimes they need a lift up to get it. But uh, but for me, uh, that's a dimension. I can see you enjoy what you do and you've got a passion behind it, but that's the measure of success as well as being happy doing what you're doing. I think, you know, I remember um, I've been fortunate enough to get support um, and, and, you know, and learn a lot from people like um, Tom Hunter and, you know, Tom speaks about, you know, not wanting to be the richest guy in the graveyard. And I see a lot of very, very wealthy people speak about that idea that, you know, their wealth's great, but it's not the thing that, that gives them lots of happiness. And I think that we hear that message over and over again, but people don't believe it, do they? They go, ah, that's true, but wait till I'm rich and then I'll do it all, you know, I'll be, I'll be good. And I, I'm trying to listen to that, that lesson, which is that, you know, if I work my whole life, and I get to the point where I've finally made money, but I'm unsatisfied, then that will have been that will have been a bit of a waste, really. You know, because what is, you know, money is just tokens that allow you to get more things. But ultimately, the things that make us happy are our experiences. We, we all know that. We all know that absolutely intrinsically, that it's our experiences that make us happy and that we get very tired of items, you know, very, very quickly. So I think that's something to, to always bear in mind is that, you know, we get most enjoyment from doing, so do something that, that you enjoy. 
But I'll also caveat that with is you're not happy all the time. I mean, happiness is not a, a state of being. It's something you go through, uh, you know. You, you can only be happy if you have bad points. You can only, you know, you only really experience the great highs when you're having the great lows, which is entrepreneurship all over. So you get to experience the big, big buzzes and you have to deal with, you know, approaching rock bottom and wonder, questioning why you're doing this and is this working and is this the right thing for me? But I think that's what entrepreneurship is. Freedom. Freedom to decide that if it's not working, I can pivot. I can change. I can adapt. And also the funniest part for entrepreneurship for me is that like I get to try building the version of the world I want to see. So, you know, we work a four day week, um, but actually for me, it's it's three full days and two half days um, because I want to try to see if I can work less and still do more. And it's, it'll be a, it's a test and it's an experiment. We've had a four day working week for years, by the way, but since, you know, been in, in, uh, in lockdown, we've adapted it even further. And that for me is the exciting bit is that if something's not making you happy, you can make a change. Doesn't mean there's not always sacrifices to that change, but you know, life's too short to be dwelling and to be sitting in, in misery in, in, in my view, when you've got, you know, make a plan to make a change. Some great points there, Bruce. It's funny, 20 years ago, as I'd said earlier, I uh, developed a program called Career Lifestyle Management, and it was to try to determine what makes happiness. And the pivots that I said, it wasn't all about wealth. You have to get a a balance between looking at five different pivots, and I'll, I'll not explain too much, but five pivots, you've got to relate it to your health. No point in having massive wealth and poor health. Mm-hmm. You've got to be mentally stimulated. You've got to ensure that your relationships are contained and there's something inside spiritually that you've got to also be in balance. And those five key pivots was what we initially looked at for career lifestyle management is if you get them in alignment, and it's always fluid, so you can't always say that's it and that's it for the rest of my life. But if you can get them in some form of alignment and understand them, that can create a, a, a significant level of happiness. Another one that I, I uh, like, just when you were talking about money and how people uh, look at money, Tony Robbins says one one aspect about uh, money. And he says that money doesn't bring you happiness whatsoever. He said, I know an awful lot of people that have got millions and they're the, the unhappiest people I've ever came across. Mm-hmm. But he, he also puts the caveat to that and says, but I'd rather have problems with money than problems without money. So there's a, there's a wee story in that in itself. But Bruce, I'm, I'm curious, you've done so much in short, uh, such a short period of time. Where in your, 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 your life and career do you think your motivations emanated from? I think, um, I think that one of the things that um, I was, I think one of the core things for me is, you know, I, I, I resented hearing that everyone hated their job growing up. I mean, uh, I've kind of got a bit of, we all moan sometimes, but I've got a general aversion to moaning, right? I, I don't know why I find it quite an irritant thing. Um, and when everyone's complaining about their jobs, I suppose in my childish, simplest, simplistic mind was like, why the fuck are you still doing it then? You know, like that's the way I thought. And so there's a bit of me that thought, you know, my passion comes from the fact that, no, I'm not going to repeat that pattern. I just don't want to repeat that pattern. I want to have a life that's more fulfilled than that. Um, 
So I think that's one of the core things that, that motivates me, but it really is now about believing that business is one of the best tools we have for uplifting society in one go, right? All, everyone has to engage with businesses. Everyone has to be served by a business. And that's whether that's a public sector business or a private sector business, but everyone has to engage with organizations. If we can change the way that organizations treat their people internally as a, as a starting point, that ripple effect is colossal. You know, if I treat my employees better and they go home and they then treat their partners better, they then treat their kids better, the ripple effect of that is massive. And so for me, I think it's the greatest tool that we have in society for affecting change. And that's the thing that really motivates me because, you know, you might not want to be the richest person in the graveyard, but you also probably don't want to be the poorest in the graveyard either, as you, you know, alluded to, as well as that, you know, you need to give people economic prosperity and opportunities, but you also need to give them meaningful work. And you know, more than anything else, you need to just show them they matter, that they as an individual matter, you're grateful for their contribution. Thank you for, you know, for showing up and working hard. And in return, I'll acknowledge you, I'll praise you, I'll promote you, you know, I'll look after you. If you have, you know, one of the things for me was about when we introduced flexible working, was thinking if someone says to me, you know, it's my grand's birthday, can I get the afternoon off to go visit her? And I said, no, say, well, what's going to happen? They're going to resent me. They're not going to work that afternoon anyway, out of just pure resentment, and they're going to leave feeling disgruntled. Or I say, yeah, absolutely, go see your gran. You might not have many opportunities left to see them. You're going to leave thinking, my boss cares about me. They've given me an opportunity, and I'm going to catch up on everything I've missed. You know, and I think for me, it's like that recognition that when we look after people, people will look after us. Um, and that's my big motivation. It's, you know, I think there's lots to change in business. There's many, many different intersecting pieces. But I think when we change the way we do business, then we change the way that we live. It's interesting. Again, Bruce, there's synergy just with what you've said. Uh, and I'm going back 20 years. But uh, one of the reasons why we wrote uh, Career Lifestyle Management was on the pretext of uh, an advert that Fish for Jobs used, which was 70% of people currently employed don't like doing what they're doing. And I had a similar thought process as you. And it, it was driven by, actually, from a business perspective, if you've worked besides one person that doesn't like doing what they're doing, how adverse that is to the rest of the group. And if you actually multiply that up to 70% of your workforce, it's huge. So the productivity level could be incredibly much better if you ensure that your workforce are happy doing what they're doing. So Absolutely. if you spend some time, you might lose some of your best in the process, but it's better to have lost those that are potentially really good at doing what they're doing, but really don't want to be in that environment and getting people that really do. So it's, it's interesting. And I think it's really important to, to, you know, if people are listening to this and they're thinking, you know, oh, yeah, it's very good, you know, you know, uh, kind of another business corporate thing saying, you know, be purpose, be respectful, all the rest of it. You know, how many times have you seen that on the wall or you've seen that in a new policy? You've got to be authentic. It's got to be true. It's got to be, you've got to truly show people because you do get 
in workplaces, people who have been like, ah, I've heard all these buzzwords, you know, many times regurgitated, regenerated over a lifetime here. It never translates to result. If you want to see transformational change, you really need to be authentic. And do you know what's more crucial than ever? You've got to believe the people that you're working with are doing their best. You actually must believe that. And if you don't believe it, then there's another, there's another issue for you to, to deal with. But you must believe that these people are trying to do, they show up every day trying to do their best. And your job as the boss is to move disruptions out their way. Processes are how companies run, right? Um, and then recognising that, you're right, take the blame away from people if things are not going as well as it should, whether it's efficiency or delivery to a customer or whatever it is. But um, what you're describing are some of the ingredients of change management. It's about embracing change. Yep. But the number one, you know, is that you're talking a lot about people and that's a common denominator through all of our ages, right? But uh, the interesting uh, analogy here is that no matter which business you're in, if the people don't feel like they can talk about what they do or they don't have the, their line management acting as a team leader who cares about the, the team leadership working among them, just like in a sporting analogy, a captain of a football team, like the Danish captain who he automatically knew what to do when Christian Eriksen uh, had that heart attack, mm -hmm. right? It's about that, that suddenly then everybody has a voice, but they also have a role to play. Yeah. It's about that, and, and it's not new. It's just the, the environment's changing a bit, so you have to adapt to that. But the ingredient is similar. And to you don't teach that at school, other than maybe in sports. Right? Yeah. Or maybe in a band or something like that. Yeah. Or uh, the scouts or whatever. But, um, but you don't get it at school. Uh, and so people who don't have the chance to learn it in another way uh, then have to hopefully experience it some way down the line in their job. And it suddenly awakens them. That's my experience in the change environment. So it, I think what you're describing there is similar to what I understand. And yeah, you're right. I mean, companies uh, that have that old-fashioned way of thinking, if something's wrong, it's somebody to blame. Again, that's your environment today in your political environment in Scotland and in the UK, right? That's but it's right. not about that. It's about this is the, ha the hand we're dealt with. Exactly. What's the best we can do with it? How do we make it better? And that's when the change comes in. And I think that one of the things is that, you know, I think I said before, is that, you know, you've got to kind of, um, you've got to take people where they're at on their journey as well. You know, it's not about blaming people because they're not. You know, one of the things that you know, obviously we've got at the moment is this um, so-called woke culture. And one of the things I think that that um, neglects to, to notice is the fact that everyone's on a different journey, different timeline, different experiences. And your job's to meet people where they're at, not condemn them for where they're not. And so when you can't blame someone for not having, you, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And you can't condemn someone for that. You know, what you hope for is that you just learn that at least you're conscious that you don't know what you don't know. You know, that's, that's a good starting point. But I think that when, when we are conditioned, you know, our society is an individualistically driven society. And so we are, we are conditioned and trained to see the other as the enemy to our prosperity. And when that is the case, and that's what you've been taught, that the only way for me to succeed is for you to fail, 
then you get that type of, of place where we blame each other. Whereas there is no one who's successful on their own, not a single person on this planet who's been successful on their own. Everyone has been enabled and supported by someone or in most cases, multiple people in their journey. And actually, the sooner we re realize that if we, you know, drop the weapons, link arms, we'll all rise together, you know, in, in one go, rather than this idea that, you know, my neighbor's my enemy or my neighbor's my competition. It's actually, you know, if we work in harmony in an ecosystem, we've got lots to learn from the way the planet operates itself, you know, is that that natural order of things is how we should be thinking about humans, human cooperation, and then that feeds over perfectly to business cooperation as well, which is that if you recognize that I need you to be successful for in order for me to be successful, then we'll all get there quicker. Bruce, you started out at the very beginning talking about the opportunities that uh, arise during certain circumstances and you started speaking about opportunities arising from a business perspective mm -hmm. out of the adversity of uh, the pandemic uh, we're now and you you alluded to it earlier we're now in a position where we've also got uh, brexit and we've got new trade deals in conjunction with all of that we've also got climate change mm -hmm. so there's three potential opportunities can mm -hmm. arise and I just wondered what your thoughts were, what your own opinions are of those opportunities for the UK and Scotland. So I think um, when it comes to, to Brexit and, um, and, and future trade deals and things and, and current trade deals that are being negotiated, uh, I think that, you know, we've got to move on from the moaning of which, I, you, know, you know, we can all be guilty of, of about Brexit and whether or not it's good, bad or ugly. But where we're at now is that we're striking relationships with countries around the world. I mean, of course, what's happening at the moment is we're just mostly focused on re-establishing relationships we already had um, within the EU. Um, going forward, it's interesting. I saw an email actually from the um, trade and investment, UK trade and investment, talking about um, a consultation on developing countries and how can Britain um, build more relationships with developing countries and more trade opportunities in areas where we've not really had market access before. So I think all those things are good. Right. I think that the opportunity for us to gauge, engage more widely, think about the fact that there are um, lots of lots of people in, in growing markets that is a great opportunity for, for, for UK companies, for Scottish companies. Scotland's too small for you to really just be trying to service this market. You know, if you want to be an international business, want to be a big business, you need to be thinking about that. What I would say is that for businesses, you know, apply pressure on the government to not reduce standards, but keep standards at, um, at, at a fair and good level because it is a zero sums game to deregulate. Because as we know, what, what happens in deregulation is you get a period of short-term growth and then bust in deregulation. That's certainly the, when the model that I look at throughout history is when we deregulate, we boom and then we bust really quickly after that. So be cautious of the short-term goals of the politicians versus the long-term necessity for our economy. That's certainly my, my perspective on it in this stage. Um, but I see opportunity everywhere, and I think that that's, has to be you know, a good thing. Well, I think, again, that he, I agree you can look at certain moments in time in history, like Clinton making an absolute mess of deregulating financial services, and then Bush having the problem with 9-11 and then using that deregulation to cause such a consumerization 
and then banks getting greedy and then the whole financial failure we saw right and globalization in the middle of all of that putting china into the free trade uh, of the world of the world trade organization and then taking advantage of it and now sitting back thinking oh my goodness we'll give them a monopoly we did it ourselves so you're right i mean i i, I believe in a free market society and the freedom to explore and invent and develop and you know promote but you, you can regulate to a certain degree what do you want to regulate you want to regulate standards of life that's important right but when they turn that into some other bureaucratic nonsense i hate it so i think you can deregulate bureaucracy but certainly if you're setting standards around life i agree there there's certain things that are not negotiable um, and should be, you know, health, life, the, the ability to feed your family and, and have shelter. These are the basics. Definitely. And also, if you look at the way that um, they've over-regulated um, areas with bureaucracy and, we, and causes huge inefficiency, that's one of the challenges that we've got is that um, oftentimes the argument is, you know, our service is better being run in the private sector or in the public sector. But it's a kind of unfair question because you know, the experience of the public sector running services is patchy, as is the private sector. But that's not necessarily the model internationally. It's not the yeah. case. It doesn't have to be. It's not an inevitability that the public sector will run things poorly. Uh, I'll give you a small example, though. <laughs> this is real experience for me. And, and I'm curious to if you're still traveling as well, Bruce, uh, let me let me hear your view. Um, checking in at Alicante Airport in Spain. Um, I have got documents up the yin yang, passenger locator forms, your vaccination record, and so on and so on, right? And there's a little guy coming along the queues, we're checking a bag in, saying, Oh, have you got that? And I'm showing him the app in my phone. Yeah, I've got all these documents, I loaded them up. And he gave me something that looked like a dinner ticket from the school in my hand. And he scribbled on a pen. He says, You won't need to show anything more while you're in Spain. <laughs> so but whereas me and my wife had been like stressing about going, oh we better have all this we don't want anything to stop us being able to travel but the guy was right so we went all the way through immigration and and all the rest of it actually and that little piece of paper that i had in my hand was the only thing i needed to give at the gate to go on the plane right yeah. when i when i got to the uk they didn't look at anything at all nobody it was totally hands off so it was completely paperless, but we were papered to hell to get ready for it. So <laughs> it's just, it's like regulation going daft and then nobody caring once you've done it. So this, this is when you say, wait a minute, it's about your personal liability as well. You should take responsibility for doing the right thing. So it's, it's, that, it's that blending of that. But that example for me was just, it says it all. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it, is that, you know, it's that constant, uh, balance of what's what's the right what's the um you know the best thing to do and then you've got to deal with the political actors you have making the decisions and and that's that's the challenge for society that's the challenge yeah. for society overall um yeah. you know one of the things as well though you know because you also asked about cop um is that that is the greatest opportunity for our economy is to use the climate crisis as an opportunity to reinvent everything I mean, everything, every product's going to need reinvented. Every use of um, materials which are unsustainable will be getting reinvented over the next, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 years, everything. You know, I was reading about how uh, mycelium 
the um, organism that grows mushrooms is they've learned to manipulate mycelium, which allows them to grow any plastic, any foods, any hard materials. And that's the future. I mean, it's the early days, but that's that's where we're heading to. So I would say today that if you're thinking about, um, you know, a business, you should be thinking about how does it work in the sustainable world? Um, and us having COP is a great opportunity to galvanize that energy and to turn the climate crisis away from this idea of there's nothing we can do, you know, inertia will not move because it's, it's just doomed. What can I do? Well, there's lots for you to do. And there's a big opportunity for, for to, to, be, to be a business in this space. Um, tons of opportunities. And also, if anyone's listening, thinking, you know, you know, I'm sick to death of hearing about the climate change. You know, what, what can I do about it? Is that because um, I know that people feel inertia around the climate crisis and feeling like what they can do next. But we've all got a role to play. Um, but don't don't take your eye off the ball. The fact that there are a handful of big players who contribute terribly to the climate crisis and we move it all to personal responsibility all the time. Um, and I think that is you should be conscious of that being a distraction from the from the problem. Bear in mind that lots of companies are putting out good adverts at the moment to greenwash because they've got one tiny green agenda versus the rest of their, their supply chain. We've really got to get on it in terms of recognising what's good behaviour, what's not good behaviour, because the floods in the north of Germany, the increasing weather across the US, this is not, this is not a tomorrow problem. This is an absolute now problem. On uh, economic issues that we have, one of the uh, questions that we like to ask all our guests, Bruce, is that uh, Tom Hunter and his foundation wrote a, a report a few months ago now, uh, but uh, the, the, the premise of it was that they were looking for ways to increase the economy whilst tackling poverty. And we ask all our guests what they would like to add to that debate. I think that um, I think one of the things about um, these uh, questions is that there's a there's a desire to express it in a simplistic way. Poverty is a issue that plagues people all over the world, right? And it's a systemic issue, not a short term issue. So you need to be thinking across all the different areas that lead to poverty um, and the different intersecting factors. So I think that's one of the things It's not that the business cannot solve poverty in of itself. And I think that it's too grand an ambition to think that it, that it can. However, it can play a tremendous role in uplifting uh, communities. And I think one of the things and I was thinking about this uh, recently, actually, with remote working and distributed work is, you know, why are we not building um, distributed work centres in, in communities that are deprived? Because, for example, lots of young people have lots of digital media, social media skills. And every company needs people with digital and social media skills. Instead of saying, you know, you need to move to Edinburgh or Glasgow to be able to work in one of these companies where they use that, why do we not go out to areas in our communities and say, actually, you can, we'll provide you with the infrastructure, as in laptops, computers, desks, whatever it might be, and we actually create jobs in these areas for in remote work. Um, you know, you can create training centers, you can create all sorts of stuff for these. You know, there's so much work out there 
And what's happening is we're having to, we're actually having to look elsewhere to, to hire people because we're not producing the, um, we're not providing the pathways for people to access these jobs. You know, it's not that we don't have the skills. It's not that we don't have the capacity. Is that I'd argue we don't have, you know, proper pathways. Um, you know, I think that's, I think that, for me, that seems like something makes a lot of sense to me is, you know, why are we not moving jobs back to more rural areas rather than centralising them all in the city? Do you also think, though, Bruce, that uh, I hear you, but I also think, I wonder, the, the younger ones in Scotland, how many of them are actually looking beyond Scotland? So you're right. I mean, the work doesn't necessarily have to originate in Scotland, but you're in Scotland and there's certain things that can be done online. You don't need to have an office. You don't need to be there. You can actually do it remotely. So I would like to believe that the younger people in Scotland coming up through education and into jobs can see beyond Scotland. Mm -hmm. So they can actually, because like your experience, you said it yourself earlier, you felt like you were being treated as even more successful when you went to say Silicon Valley or wherever. And that's that's because you didn't realize you were as successful as the way they were viewing you. And that's that's actually endemic in society in Scotland. So there's, there's, there's something, so it's, I think the, the levelling up agenda that's causing the debate politically at the moment, I think it's the right debate. How we solve it is another thing. Um, and of course, building infrastructure helps, right? Yeah. But there's also the attitude about you know, people not just sitting there waiting to get it handed to them, yeah. you know, entitlement. It's not an entitlement. It's a case of you need to get up and go for it and believe in yourself. And yeah. that stimulus, that stimulus is what I'd like to see happen. So... What are your thoughts on that, Bruce? Yeah, I think one of the things that, um, you know, to, to kind of um, caveat my point is that um, when you shut down community centres, when you remove funding from local communities and you plunge people into deeper and deeper poverty, you don't actually have the capacity to to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I think that's one of the narratives that is um, that is we say quite a lot to people. But actual fact that, so there's evidence which suggests that um, no matter who you are, even if you're Albert Einstein, if you're stressed, it will reduce your IQ. So everyone has their IQ reduced through stress. And we've got whole communities that are living in in very stressful and traumatic um, environments. And so there is a situation which is like, you know, you're asking people with, with very little resources to be more entrepreneurial, to be more resource-led, while we're also cutting our community centres, we're reducing funding, you know, we're providing uh, in, inflexible or not enough um, stability in work in lots of these areas. You know, there's not investment going in, but there is, uh, you know, a, a bookies, a pub, and something else in these communities. So actual investment into these areas is necessary. You cannot reduce that. Um, that social infrastructure that helps give people the capacity to go on and think about other things. That is a necessity. You can't have it without the other. You can't have without those foundations, you're not going to build, in my in my view. But beyond that, I think what we what we need to be, um, those of us who are in positions, is to feel good about talking up Scotland, talking up our communities, talking up our people, talking up our opportunities, 
showing that you don't all have to sound and look the same in order to be successful and that there is not one model of success. So you don't have to do it the way someone else did it, you know. Um, but I think the best thing for anyone is, is to get outside Scotland, to, you know, to go and explore. There is great initiatives like the, um, the Saltire programme run by Entrepreneur Scotland, where they place young people and companies all over the world. You know, it's a shame that we've not got the Erasmus programme now as a result of Brexit, um, which would be great to see, you know, what equivalent programmes the Scottish government can come up with. Um, but that's the kind of stuff we need. We need to be, you know, Scotland's so well received internationally that it would be great if we were to utilise more of those relationships. You know, there's we've got lots of twinning relationships in Scotland as well. Like our towns, our villages are twinned with places all over all over Europe. Um, we should we should look at, at building on those relationships because you know we all know when you meet people from different parts of the world, it. It humbles you. You realise that we're all the same. We're all looking for the similar things, um, and you know it, it broadens your horizon massively. You should have seen that in America as well, I assume, Bruce, because we're not only twinned. We have the, exactly the same name of towns <laughs> in, in in America. I looked up Glencoe yesterday for the weather, and it took me to uh, Glencoe, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> um, Duncan Smiley, one of our first. Uh, uh, entrepreneurs onto the the podcast said that he had been well travelled, and a very uh, wealthy entrepreneur that owns the Glasgow Rocks basketball club now in the and he said, you know, if you're going to take on the world, go out there first and have a bloody good look at it. And I can't help but uh, I, I just wrote this this morning, and it was the quote from Lawrence Morrison. And that was the uh, guest that we had last week. And I've got to, I've got to finish the travel aspect with his quote. And it was, "I urge you to travel as far and as much as possible. Work ridiculous shifts to save your money. Go without the latest iPhone. Throw yourself out of your comfort zone. Find out how other people live and realise that the world is a much bigger place than the town that you live in." And when you come home, and home may still be the same, and yes, you might go back to the same old job, but something in your mind will have changed. But trust me, that changes everything. Yeah. And I think that's a fantastic quote, an absolutely good, amazing yeah. quote from a chap yeah. that was 20 years in the Royal Navy and, and an entrepreneur after that. Mm -hmm. Just an incredible quote. Yeah. That was inspirational to me. And Bruce, you've been very inspirational throughout your life. I just wonder if I can ask you if there's been any people in particular that you say have inspired yourself. Oh, endless, to be honest with you, endless numbers of people. Yeah, I'm, I'm inspired by so people like Stacey Ferreira, who first invited me over to Silicon Valley. She massively inspired me. She was only 20 when, you know, when we met. Um, so you know, we're about the same age. Um, and so that was really inspiring to see you know, what she'd achieved. Um, it's been, there's so many people in, in Scotland who, who inspire me. There's lots of you know, unsung heroes who I think you know, deserve you know, mention that you know, my co-founder Zoe, I, I, she inspires me. You know, she's uh, a woman who came over from Greece. Um, she's relocated, live, lives in Scotland, um, has been through, you know, challenges to get where she is. And I think she's she's tremendous. Um, I think that I'm definitely inspired by people like Tom Hunter. You know, Tom has 
been unbelievably generous to me with his with his time, with his money, with his support. You know, I think that, and the fact that he is so committed to giving back is his you know core motivation. I think that's really inspiring. Um, but I'm also really inspired. To be honest, I'm inspired by anyone who comes through adversity to do something because life's fucking hard, and you know. To be able to decide that despite all that, I'm going to get out there and do something. I'm going to put my head above the parapet and I'm going to take a risk. You know, for me, that that's very, very inspiring. Bruce, you'll be pleased to know this is the last <laughs> question. And it's a two-part question that we asked. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? And what advice would you give to the next generation? I think the best, probably the best piece of advice I could give is that, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend most of your time with. And... If you spend your time with people who are really negative and pessimistic, even if you're the most optimistic, you'll average out that pessimism. But if you spend your time with people who are positive, ambitious, confident, then you will average, even if you are really, really low in all of those things, you will average out at that confidence. Um, and so I think that's a really important one is surround yourself with great people. You've got, if you want to be successful, it doesn't mean you let go of other people. It doesn't mean you don't spend time with them at all. But it just means that you make sure you surround yourself with people who are on the same wavelength vision as you. Um, and then the advice I'd give people is don't be afraid to get it wrong. We all get it wrong every day. I make many, many mistakes. It's about, you know, keep going, keep trying, keep transforming, keep learning. That's the key is that, you know, you never know everything you need to know. There's always something more to learn. Um, and be humble. Be humble enough to to, to listen and learn and, and, and reflect. Bruce Walker, thanks very much for joining us here. And I was going to podcast. It's been a pleasure meeting you this morning. Absolute yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me, Stuart Collins. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you.